Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval, terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. For this season of Working, we left the East Coast behind and flew to Detroit. We're speaking with eight people who are drawing on the city's complex history as they work to create its future. In this week's episode, we're speaking with Diana Nucera, director of Detroit Community Technology Project. Almost 40% of Detroit's residents have no access to broadband internet in their homes, which among other things, potentially deprives them of economic opportunities by cutting them off from job possibilities. Nusara talked about the ways that she and her organization are aiming to allay that really severe digital divide gap, telling us uh, about how they try to cultivate tech literacy in Detroit communities and how they train organizers. But she also goes into her own day-to-day role as a nonprofit director in Detroit and tells us a little about her own background in the DIY punk movement. Then, in a Slate Plus Extra, Nucera shares her perspective on what net neutrality means for Detroit. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? (laughs) My name is Diana Nucera and I'm the director of the Detroit Community Technology Project, which is a sponsored project of Allied Media Projects. What does that involve? What what are you up to? Right. So I think the like easiest way to explain it to folks that gets them to maybe ask more questions is I help people make their own internet. Um, And then I also um, demystify technology in a way that allows people to teach it Mm -hmm. in a more community oriented way. So being able to sort of disseminate like really complex technological concepts to folks that often aren't considered when it when they think about Uh, technology education. So for instance, like poor neighborhoods in Detroit um, that are highly affected by having access to digital technologies um, or working with technologists to be able to teach in a way that is more inclusive and uh, accessible to a more diverse audience. Um, And one of the big things that we work on is this problem that we have in Detroit, which is that 40% of Detroiters are without internet at all. So not just not broadband, but also not on phones or other Right. So it's both broadband and mobile. Mm -hmm. So any sort of fixed connection is not, uh, folks don't have that here. And so it's a big problem when you consider the economic issues of Detroit and the also rapid change of Detroit. Um, So like classism exists 
already, right? Where you have newcomers that are are coming in and seeing like, whoa, these houses are so cheap. I'm going to buy them all, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. Um, to people who have lived here for a very long time and have struggled and and sort of staying in the city. Um, And so there, one thing that I'm really aware of and, and worried about is with this new gigabit internet that we have being built in Detroit, that uh, we not only create this economic class, but then we're also bringing that into the digital space and creating this digital class system um, that is really determined on how fast your internet is and what you can do with it on top of not know like how, what you know what to do with mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, as I understand it, one of the real crises of extreme digital divides of that nature, uh, especially in a developing economy, is that people don't have access to the economy because job applications and things like this, or even job listings are all happening online, so. Yeah, but and it's also, I think that's a very common narrative too, that the internet equals jobs, but it's, mm-hmm. it's so much more. It okay. equals connection to your community, to your loved ones, to mm-hmm. your, to community outside of even this country. Um, and also social services, like you can't apply for a bridge card um, mm. in an office, you have to do it online. So how are you going to access that if you don't have the internet? Yeah. Um, so then social, it's like, it is jobs, but it's social services and it is community and other resources because mm. the internet is interweaved in our lives in really complex ways from your fancy watch that shows you what to do all day to day to um, just like my ability to even communicate to have this interview to take place. Right. So what is the kind of nature of the organization? Is it uh, is it a governmental uh, institution, an NGO? What, what, what's your what's your status? So um, Allied Media Projects is a 501c3 and um, it's so it's a nonprofit um, because we sort of are sponsored projects within that. We are um, a nonprofit, um, and, but we do intersect in all these different ways of like community organizing, art, technology, and policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of our work is around thinking about open data um, ordinances, specifically the one that just happened in Detroit. How does that affect people's lives? How do people have access to that in a way that really enhances the way they're already doing work? What does that involve here in Detroit? Um, the open data project that we're doing here in Detroit involves um, working with this group called the Digital Justice Coalition, which formed in 2009, um, which was a moment in which Detroit was, the big question about Detroit was, is it worth being saved? Which is completely different than the narrative today, which is Opportunity Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, at the time, our question was, is what can the role of media and technology be in building new economies based in mutual aid? And so the Digital Justice Coalition sort of formed in order to create a body that is full of multiple perspectives from seniors to artists to technologists and different NGOs around the city um, to really think about the value of technology and the Internet. Um, And I say that leading up to this data project because it's really come out of the work of the DDJC um, because um, the 
ordinance that was uh, created around open data in like February of 2015, I believe, um, what it did is it, it put people's data online, not just the not just the cities, not just the interactions that people are having in government to make government more transparent, which I think is mainly the goal of open data, mm-hmm. but it also puts citizen data online. So, when you say citizen data, what does that mean? Or residence data. So basically like your unpaid parking tickets, your license registration, um, your taxes, your water shutoffs, mm-hmm. um, all of that then becomes a part of that portal. Seems like that could potentially be privacy violation well yes it could also potentially harm and further criminalize people mm-hmm. that are often criminalized um so when you think about a, a neighborhood for instance um that is maybe facing some crime or whatever uh, but is in the midst of um this real estate sort of change like that open data about that neighborhood can sort of shift the opportunities that those residents have um, and that's what we, as we, we dove into it as the Digital Justice Coalition to really think about like, well, what what does open data mean to like the day-to-day person, not mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. the journalists, not just the app developers, not just the building developers, but how can it be beneficial and also harmful to those who um, just live in the city? Um, and we realize that there's not a whole lot of actual cases of people using it to their benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we started really working on understanding, like, one, what is what are people's relationship with data? We're in this culture where we're constantly giving away our information. You get a library card. You get a license. You're, we have this one um, workshop that we do that's called What's in Your Wallet? And it's basically picking out all the cards in your wallet and, like, thinking about all the information you had to give away in order to get those cards mm-hmm. where does that information live mm-hmm. and what 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 kind of data trail does that leave for you and how does that affect your life and your neighborhood because mm-hmm. i don't think people realize that their consumer data and having access to all of this actually flips a neighborhood because people will like let's say with this new legislation around um, the internet service providers being able to sell our our um, user data they can sell that to a company that's trying to figure out where they're going to build the next, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that will flip a neighborhood, especially here in Detroit. So we wanted to give that same opportunity to organizers. So f- specifically folks that are organizing land trusts that are trying to buy their homes in their neighborhood and, and, and that are in foreclosure to ensure that their neighbors can stay there, to buy up homes that are from a community um, perspective so that you're not just getting strangers that are coming in saying, this is a cheap house, but you're keeping the residents of Detroit who stayed here throughout this whole long, painful revitalization process that they actually get to stay. Um, and so we're learning that the thing that is a barrier to all of this to being able to interact in a digital age is digital literacy. Um, the information of what we know about technology is really limited to based on how it, what it's capable of. We know that our phones can do X, Y, and Z, but then how it's used and how it's developed, like I think is needs to be more in the hands of the, the users. Mm-hmm. Um, so our work is really trying to figure out how to shift that to where instead of having Apple and Microsoft sort of tell us what's next, that neighborhoods are able to say what they need and then develop what's next. So you're leading classes then with uh, 
with folks in Detroit to help them better understand their digital footprint? Yes, there's uh, two approaches that we have. One is uh, called a discotech, which is short for discovering technology. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And yes, there is disco music that's played during the discotechs. Um, and basically those, those actually were formed from the digital justice coalition in efforts to understand like what digital literacy do we need that do people want? Mm -hmm. And so the idea is, is that you work with a community anchor org. So for instance, we're working with a library coming up, um, and we're saying like, what is, what do you think people will want? Um, and so then we'll try to solicit these stations to create like almost like a science fair of people teaching and learning tech with each other. Mm. Um, and so sometimes that looks like elders teaching other elders how they use Facebook or getting someone else an email address mm. or sharing something like what a mesh network is or having people do this what's in your wallet um, workshop that I talked about earlier. Um, and the idea is that like you're not necessarily bringing experts to people, but you're bringing the expert out in people mm. because the digital technology, whether you have access to the internet or not, is infused in our lives. Mm-hmm. Whether it holds your social security benefits or whether it's like your day to day, you live by your phone mm-hmm. or your Google calendar or whatever, like it is infused in our lives in a way that is as essential as water is. Mm. Um, and so it's people are already experts at it, but the way in which technology is being taught, we honor only those with computer science degrees mm-hmm. to be able to tell us what's possible. And so our work at DCTP, the Detroit Community Technology Project, is trying to shift that narrative. So it's about connecting people with others who already are using the technology in powerful ways that are potentially civically important. Right, that relate to them. Because what, you know, Joe Schmo from downtown that works at, you know, the big tech firm has no idea what Sally blah, blah, blah in the North End needs. Um, And so how would they know what to teach them? Mm -hmm. Um, It's an assumption. Um, And not all techies know how to interact with communities to ask or to even begin by listening um, and that often is most of the work is to teach people how to begin by listening. So one part of what you do is this uh, discotheque uh, educational event. You said there was a second right. wing of it. Um, so we also um, recently created this uh, book called the Teaching Community Technology Handbook. And that has been the foundation to teach, to train trainers, basically, on some of our other curriculum. Mm-hmm. And our main curricula is um, the Digital Stewards um, program, which essentially trains residents um, in a neighborhood how to build, um, organize, and maintain a wireless network. Mm. And um, we got really, as we've been doing this work for the past five years and understanding mesh technologies, wireless technologies, and been working with this group, Open Technology Institute in um DC, yep, New America Foundation in New York. We work. Disclosure: I'm a former employee of New America. Oh wow! Yeah, there's a lot of them. (laughs) It's like you'll find a Detroiter wherever you go. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) um, But uh, yeah, so they really taught us a lot about um, what 
Mesh does. They were building this software called Commotion and we were sort of a test bunny and we combined our ability to do popular education and really create accessible technology to create this deeper curriculum called Digital Stewards that trains people in um, wireless engineering and it's at a very high level. Um, and this isn't just about setting up a router in your house that your neighbors can use. No, this is about building a full-on infrastructure in your neighborhood. Wow. That, so how does that work? Um, so first we have to teach people how to organize. Yeah. Um, and so we actually focus more on like training residents that are already organizers because it is so much easier to teach someone technology than it is to teach someone organizing. Um, and so we focus on those active residents in the neighborhood and then we, um, teach them about, uh, James and Grace Lee Boggs and their philosophies around organizing, which are really based in relationships. Tell us who those, those people are. Um, well, James Boggs and Grace Lee Boggs are incredible activists, um, in mentors of our of mine and my colleagues here in Detroit, Grace Lee Boggs just recently passed at 100 years old, um, this couple, a year ago, and um, she really, she, her philosophy was that uh, what I've learned from her is that if I transform myself, I transform the world around me, which I believe also is something Gandhi used to talk about too. Mm. And so that is that and the way in which you do that is through building relationships, making connections, and then you can cultivate things that are meaningful and purposeful and that are sustainable. So if I can be corny about it, you're, you're trying to help people build networks to build networks. Yes. To build networks. Yes, because I believe, and our, our model is that, yeah, it's like super like meta. <laughs> <laughs> There's, I believe that um, economic revitalization actually starts from within a very small piece of people mm -hmm. uh, or a, a, a microscopic moment of people relating to each other. Mm -hmm. um, and that's so, that's really intertwined into our curriculum is that we talk a lot about relationship building. They learn collaborative facilitation. How do you generate ideas? How do you facilitate conversations a way that are inclusive, not just top down? Mm -hmm. um, so things like, you know, having people collage together to like come up with a new idea or whatever. So really kind of deconditioning the way in which we've been taught in some ways. Um, we also teach uh, people a little bit about preparedness plans, like how do you then activate your community um, to create a preparedness plan so that when you build this network, you can, uh, it has a purpose that you are, you can, you can sort of prepare for a flood or a, um, a water shutoff for that matter. Mm. And um, they sort of think about the purpose of the network before they learn the tech and they learn, a deep, they go deep into organizing and the history of organizing in Detroit before they go into the tech and then they learn about wireless engineering and they go deep into different routers line of sight mapping assets rooftop assessments all that organizing um, building owners to get on their rooftop to be able to put a, a router up mm -hmm. um, the class itself looks like people messing with routers um, and doing a little bit of programming um, to get in learning IP addresses, what the internet is. I mean, it's really complex. And yeah. like, sometimes I'm just like, I don't know, like how we do it. But I do. It's through popular education. It's yeah. through taking the moment to figure out how to teach in a way that's relevant to people. And that's why we built the handbook. 
um, because we realize that it's the foundation of all of this is how we teach and learn with each other. In communities where people don't have access, or at least easy access to, to, to internet, what are the sort of material or, or personal or communal effects of that? How does that, how does that bear really specifically, do you think, on, on the lives of Detroit residents? Yeah, that's a good question, um, because I think the way in which to answer that is for you to think about all the ways in which the Internet is interwoven in your life mm -hmm. and then imagine not having that. Mm -hmm. I can't speak to what people's experiences are because um, I think they're so different. But if you just take a second to imagine what life would be like without the Internet, I think you'll have your answer. It's almost impossible. I know, right? I feel like I, I'm like sometimes I when I'm with my elders and I feel so lucky because the organizing community here is so packed with amazing elders. We always are like, wait, how did you guys organize things <laughs> without the Internet? Um, and so there's this interesting symbiosis happening in Detroit that I love so much where the elders really keep us informed about what the old processes were so we don't lose sight of connecting with each other while we're also teaching our elders how to use social media to advance their efforts. How to connect in new ways. Uh-huh. Yep. When you actually uh, are able to help a community set up internet for the first time, give, give people access, um, how does it change? Are there particular things you've seen people get excited about or particular things that uh, have, have shifted in, in the patterns of their lives and their communities? Right. I think that's it's so hard to track, though, right, because um, we use the Internet in so many different ways and it has such a function. Um, but what I see people get excited about, specifically in working in the discotheques, um, I see elders get really excited about the capabilities of their phone and mm -hmm. their ability to connect with their grandchildren, to see pictures of their grandchildren, um, to take photos and to send them online, um, to put an article of their business out without having to wait for someone to write it, um, and to create um, a website that allows them to sell products to having this intranet that they can use as a bulletin board so they, like a organization or a block club, can disseminate information a lot easier. Um, the thing that I'm most excited about with our newest project is that the Grace in Action group that we're working with in Southwest Detroit, which is one of the most polluted areas in the United States um, because of the oil refineries and everything that's sort of around it, they are excited about finally being able to do air quality monitoring because they haven't been able to move any sort of legislation around air pollution in that area because they, they keep getting told that there's no way for them to collect that data. And so they're excited about being able to collect the data and making a case for it, mm -hmm. um, while also being able to communicate and share with each other when something's wrong. Like let's say they need to not be out smelling the air. They can use their network to warn people. It's incredible the ideas that people have. There's no one particular thing that will change once you get the internet. It really depends on what your interests are. Um, and like, once when we had this class and we asked people like what was your first experience online there was um an elder who was 78 at the table who used to work on the morse code um so he remembers the switch from bell to like um the internet and creating the first sort of network in the 60s 
Um, and then we had an, a millennial, a uh, young person in the room who had got on the internet in 2002. So someone who experienced the internet in the 60s and someone who experienced it in 2002. And you know what? Their reflection was exactly the same. They were completely overwhelmed with the possibilities. And uh, I think that when someone gets online for the first time, I think that's true to a lot of people, even people who are very seasoned. There's just so much out there. Like, what do you concentrate on? And so I think that's why we try to bring people online together as a community, um, because it's a scary place. It's like space. Like, what do you expect? You know, can we breathe in here? You know, um, and so it's sort of like as a community, you can start to build the equivalent to like parks and bike lanes and sidewalks that people can navigate, um, because essentially the internet is this digital architecture that like overlays all of our lives. And like as we develop and build land like we develop and build the internet with our what we consume and produce on it um and so i think that's a really long way of saying i think it it completely changes someone's life when they're able to access information in a way that makes sense to them do you work with people to help them negotiate the darker or more troubling sides of the internet the uh, troll factories of twitter or or even the more mundane problems of addiction to social media and such? Yeah, and I think that actually happens in more of a physical form where we are, that's where the community organizing and the um, participatory facilitation teaching comes into place is that like if we can foster relationships and understand how to navigate hard times with each other in the physical world, we can do that in the digital world as well. Um, But one way that we help navigate the sort of darker side of the internet is um, really training people in producing um, rather than consuming. So our, we're not teaching people how to, this is the website you go to for this, or this is this resource. We're teaching them how to make media, how to tell their stories, and then how to then put that online. Um, because that's how you sort of shift that darker side, right? Is by flooding it with things that actually are relevant to you and that you care about. You're listening to Diana Nussera, director of the Detroit Community Technology Project. After this break, she talks about her role in the organization. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So what is your role in all of this? Right. Um, (laughs) so as the director of the Detroit Community Technology Project, the day-to-day is, uh, a lot of conversations and I think I hold the overall vision. I like, as far as developing the program and the intricacies of how one thing leads to another, 
Um, and my job is to make sure everyone is aware of that, help them troubleshoot problems along the way because no plan ever goes mm-hmm. as planned. Um, there's drama that occurs, you know, like we're human. Like some people want to fire other people. And I'm like, don't do that. We just spent like a year training them. Uh, (laughs) some people like get stressed out because there's stuff like, um, contracts and negotiations that we have to do. And so my job is to make sure that I really build the capacity of my team to be able to do this work and that they can then build the capacity in these organizations that we work in. How many people are you managing or overseeing? Um, Currently, um, I have four staff members that work in the office and I'm working with six folks um, throughout our sites, but that will double in a couple months and we'll have another six so there'll be what is that 12 plus four 16, 16 people plus you, 17 plus me and yeah. and those and are they full-time people or are they volunteers no i um truly believe in paying people for this work like mm-hmm. this is no i mean it's a labor of love and it's very stressful you know like um organizing is no small feat and um, so I have a couple, I have two part-time employees, one that um, works specifically on our data justice work that mm-hmm. is doing a lot of the research um, in people's relationship with data. And then I have a graphics designer, I have a full-time coordinator and a full-time IT um, coordinator, but I also have a contracted IT network engineer. And then, um, yeah, so that's my team. Where is the funding for all of this coming from? You're a 501c3, you're a nonprofit. You probably, I assume, must spend a fair amount of your time. You didn't say you have a fundraising person. Did oh, you? yeah, yeah. So that's so that the other part you. of it. There's like working on the people to make sure that, you know, like life is good and that we're relating well. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I call it um, the deep tissue massaging, you know, <laughs> like you're just always like kind of rather than the firefighter, because I think yeah. the massaging prevents the fires, you know. Yeah. Um, (laughs) um, I'll put out a fire if I need to. Um, But the other side of it is really thinking about this, the fundraising um, in always hustling like contracts, always hustling ways in which um, we can take the materials that we've already built and um, have earned income with them or support other people in doing the same project so that this idea of community technology is like more spread out. I mean, there's a whole lot of thinking about the future, always. I feel like my brain is like a year ahead. Uh-huh. And so like I've become really good at time hacking, uh-huh. <laughs> is what in, I call it. In the it. sense of making the best use of your time or or, or In the sense of stretching time out, in the sense of like what it means is like, so I know in July or September fundraising has to begin, but I know that already in May. So how can I lay the seeds so that it's like, you know, you get more done. And the more you know about the work that you do, the more you can get ahead of the game. You start to think about triangulation with people that you want to like um, support or invest in your projects. So it's sort of like, I don't know, sometimes I feel like a psychic or something like (laughs) Like I have these like weird, um, like calendar powers. Um, just the fact that we were able to schedule this is like a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> we're so glad you did. <laughs> so, does that come at all? Is it just a a function of running a nonprofit? Uh, generally, do you think, or or does it come that that sort of futurological thinking come of uh, working on technology, working on helping people catch up with? the present moment, catch up to the present moment, and also anticipate where they're going. 
how they're getting there. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think because we're working with technology, we have to think about five years down the line Mm -hmm. because what we're doing now may not make sense then. And so we need to come, we need to understand the root of the problems, right? So we're heading in the right direction. Then the other part comes with, yeah, like we live in Detroit. We are a nonprofit. We're hustling like everybody else is. I mean, there's a saying, Detroit hustles harder. It's so true. Mm. And it's like so many people wear a million different hats, you know, in order to get this work done. And it's a labor of love. And I think that's why people love Detroit so much. And when they come here, they want to be a part of it because people do what they love. A lot of them do. I mean, there's a lot of folks that are not um, able to do that. But I feel like the... Working as a nonprofit in Detroit, you are faced with navigating a low-resourced area. People are, um, there's a culture within nonprofits in general to fight for funding rather than to join forces for funding. And I feel like that's also work that Allied Media Projects is doing. Um, And you also just constantly have these other things besides the tech that's changing the landscape of Detroit is changing so rapidly then you have to be aware of what issues that are important because they can change from week to week from like Mm -hmm. gentrification looks like this or it looks like this and like it feels like we have to just be grounded in like what we're doing and understand that purpose so that we can um, sort of drown out the noise or at least not at ambulance chase um, because it it's very easy to do so like when I mean the city is flipping around it's like wild every day is so different it's not the same as when I arrived in 2008 like uh, my own rent has gone up a ton you know mm-hmm. like um, there's funders funders like really own the landscape at some points and so uh, I think the the hats and the time hacking and and the calendar stuff is like also a sense of understanding your purpose and a sense of what is needed and sticking to it and not being changed, but changing the narrative of what people, other people think need to be changed. Um, Because you'll have moments of funders or corporate, whatever, like trying to say, this is the new hot thing or trying to change the name from this is not community technology. This is civic technology. Mm And so a lot of the work is really holding ground um, and saying, no, it's actually this. And I think, honestly, I think that's why some of the respect that we've gotten is to not like sort of flow, but to balance out like changing and evolving with the times, but while also holding who we are and being very true to the needs of Detroit Mm -hmm. and the people we work with. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So how did you get into this work in the first place? The Allied Media Conference. 
Um, the Allied Media Conference changed my life. Um, brought me into Allied Media Projects. It happens every year in Detroit um, in the in the summer. And uh, I went to the first one when I was 17 years old as a little Midwest uh, zine hopper and little punk. Um, and uh, uh, 20, 2005, I found myself going back as a um, youth media educator. Were you focused on technology at the time? Yeah, I've been focused technology a lot of my life. I think just like um, I was, I don't know if I'm a millennial or not. I think I'm in that like weird like generation Y zone or something. But um, once the internet was introduced in my life, I was like, wow, let's do this. (laughs) You know, I was like, yes, thank goodness I was born in this era. (laughs) You know, Um, I think I saw the potential of it really early in as a, uh, I, I remember it my junior year in high school, um, having to use it, the internet, and that really changing my perspective of life. Mm-hmm. Are you from Detroit originally? No, I grew up in a small town in Indiana, Frankfort, Indiana, born in Chicago, did my schooling in San Francisco and Chicago, and then was recruited um, to come help move the AMC, the Allied Media Conference, from Bowling Green, Ohio to Detroit. Um, and to bring my education, my media and technology education skills um, to Detroit to also allow for there to be more local programming because the conference is a national conference. Mm-hmm. And so ever since 2005, that day that I went to the AMC again, yeah. um, I just started really getting into this work. And one one thing has led to another. And um, now the Detroit Community Technology Project's my baby. So when you were a zine scene kid, what was it that pulled you to the Allied Media Conference? What was it at the time that attracted you to it? Well, I was fortunate enough to have a crew of friends that uh, we were like a punk pact, basically. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I hung out with a lot of the older kids. Um, some of them were already out of school and they were involved in this DIY punk scene. Um, and so Punk Planet, which is a, a magazine um, that um, Anne Elizabeth Moore, who now lives in Detroit, which I'm so excited about, created um, in Chicago, f- specifically for folks like myself that were like different. And um, they had, I think that's where I got a lot of information. I think Bitch Media also started around that time. And so they also like had, it was, it, it was like, that scene, which I think really came out of the uh, World Trade Organization um, meeting in Seattle, which is now known as the Battle of Seattle. Mm-hmm. And what was that, 99? 1999, yeah. The Battle of Seattle was basically this this movement around anti-globalization. So thinking about the United States and like Western powers really impacting a uh, global economy. And this was, you know, like prior to the internet really having like a huge push on that. So it was all these World Trade Organization sort of meeting in, in Seattle and, P- and the anti-globalization movement kind of culminating at that moment. Allied Media Projects came out of that. The Beehive Design Collective came out of that. A lot of uh, what we know now is like these media-based organizing sort of projects came out of that. So what at that point was the Allied Media Conference? Is it something that has changed over the years? Oh, yes, absolutely. At the time, it was uh, the Midwest Zine Fest, which mm-hmm. was a an independent publishing conference. Right, because zines are these, like, 
usually handmade, super personal, uh, like mini publications. Right, right. In many ways, uh, progenitors of, of early blogs and things like this, yep. totally offline for the yeah, most part. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I never thought of it that way. But yeah, it was sort of like people taking uh, publications into their own hands and saying, hey, we're going to do this. Just like at the, the time, the DIY punk scene was that you were going to publish your own music, mm-hmm. which was like pre- uh, Napster or whatever, you know, like I feel like, or not, maybe not pre Napster, but I feel like Napster had something to do with it. So, so you're, you've always been sort of embedded in this scene. That's about taking agency, not just over media consumption, but media production and engagement, uh, well before the rise of the modern commercial internet in some ways. Yeah. Or at least the modern commercial internet as we know it now. Yeah. And I think that being a part of that DIY punk scene really politicized me in thinking about, um, class war. Mm and classism and I think it really struck me because I grew up in Indiana and I was one of four families of color um I didn't understand why people treated me different Uh, I wasn't aware of like what it meant to be a woman of color till I left Indiana but um I think that that inherently politicized me that when I found this scene I was like oh yes I understand (laughs) you know like I understand why we need to fight for difference and why homogeny is so destructive Um, And so, yeah, essentially that's led me to where I am now, but really thinking about the internet and technology and how that can really foster difference. Um, And um, I just like enhance people in so many ways. How has your role uh, within this work changed over the years? Right. Within Um, the scenes, I guess. Yeah, it's been so interesting. Gosh, I've like, I feel like a whole different person you know, because I've been able to do this work, but also just the time going by and like no spring chicken anymore. Um, but I went from organizing this how-to track, um, which is what it, what it said, people teaching how to do things. That turned into like a DIY tech track, which then turned into this thing called a media lab, um, which was a potluck of technology for people to teach and learn together. Were you learning a lot about technology in this period? I mean, did you... This were, is all how I learned about technology. Right, so you didn't like do like formal schooling or something in this stuff. I did my undergrad in, um, excuse me, in art and technology. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was weird. It's like... I I learned differently than the way I was taught. So a lot of my interactions with technology has been taking it apart or experimenting what I can do to combine things. So mm-hmm. like my thesis was in grad school was like making a program for my cello to like control video mm-hmm. um, so I could play a thunderstorm. So it's like stuff like that. Um, but I was always intimidated by it because, um, one, men were always teaching me and they undermined me a lot. Um, so I never got to just like fully go into it or ask questions in a way that felt comfortable. I think that informed the way in which I um, approach technology now. Um, and the one thing sort of was led to another. So this media lab turned into the idea of a discotheque. The discotheque showed us what m- digital literacy can look like in the city. Um, and then this, this like deep love for education and this also this personal experience of being t- not being taught in this way that I needed um, to figure out this pedagogy um, of community technology and to then be able to teach others that. Um, so it's sort of a long, twisty line, but all with this sort of underlying tone of accessibility mm-hmm. and um, fostering difference and... Um, just really making sure the things we do are rooted in need, mm. which seems so simple, 
but because of all the bells and whistles of tech, like it's, I think it's hard for people to do that. So how long have you been in Detroit itself now? Nearly 10 years. Has the city's relationship to technology changed during that time, you think? Oh, yeah. Like, it's nuts. Um, we recently got a chief information technology officer. I don't think we had one before mm-hmm. the open data portal. Um, or if we did, I did I, you know, it's like a long time. Um, so just the fact that the city even opened the data is nuts because, like, um, our infamous mayor, Kwame Kilpatrick, actually had an ordinance that forbade that. Hmm. Um, and that's probably why he got to do a lot of the corruption that he did get to do. Um, and then we also have smart city conferences coming to Detroit, thinking about what's possible, you know, like with this with this clean slate. You know, I think that's how people think about it. Do you think um, that's an accurate characterization of the city? That it's a technological clean slate? Absolutely not. No, like, um, but it's like... It, I mean, it's the home of the automobile. Yeah. It is where I think where a lot of technology was incubated. Like yeah. the, um, I mean, if you want to track our cyborgism, it goes back to the car. Mm. Um, <laughs> and so like there's been a deep history of like innovation and technology in the city that I think people forget about because of our economic decline um, that lasted so long. You also have here uh, offices of major tech companies. Microsoft has has a big office here, I think. Oracle, uh, I, I think IBM does uh, even. Do, does the presence of these kind of tech behemoths uh, make a difference at all in a city that it seems like it's also really marked by, by huge disparities of uh, access and uh, education and understanding around technology? Does, do, does there... Um presence make a difference in that no because they're not talking to any of those people mm-hmm. and that's why we do what we do and that's why we're we're important i think in this landscape and that they also come to us a lot for advice yeah. like i think even though we've been doing this work for so long like recently now people realize like we don't know how to get into that neighborhood mm-hmm. um and so it makes it like it's like actually an opportunity for us to allow people to be better players or teach them how to do that or at least kind of swing people into a different direction you know to say hey that's not going to make any sense like okay you're gonna you're gonna put internet in a light pole wonderful how are people gonna (laughs) use it you know like they're not gonna stand there don't you know that like it's no one wants to be walking around at night even if it is lit up like you know if so the thing is is that uh the problem is a lot of the people that are i would say that there's not a whole lot of people that are in those companies that actually live in the city and have experienced the city for its whole self because they live out in the suburbs or or suburbs or they're living in an area that's like you know east english village or like indian village or places that are really nice um and i think that without that knowledge there's a big disconnect to what is actually necessary so sure we could build like people want street lights they've been putting up their own neighborhoods have been putting up their own street lights like but now we have lights that are led operated with like are, that are, you know, online that shut off on their own and like conserve energy and maybe shoot out internet. Like it's sort of like we laid the foundation for that to happen, mm. you know? And I think some people think about these corporations are the ones that are coming in and revitalizing Detroit. Well, that's not true at all. It's been the people who have been here for the longest time who have been doing the work and grinding. It has actually opened up the opportunity for them to have this moment. Mm. And it is it's like, it is so important that they work with the organizers within the city if they want to be successful because I don't think people are going to know how to 
actually get their services into some of these neighborhoods because they have no idea who these people are and what they experience. Does it feel weird at all to have maybe helped facilitate or engender some of that uh, gentrification? Um, well, if I understand what you're saying, right, that um, that and gentrification may not even be the right word here, but that the work that you've been doing for more than a decade now has maybe made possible some of these flashy smart city innovations and such that may or may not be useful. Yeah. Like, is that true? I think that's a question. Um, Maybe it's the wrong question that I've asked them. I think that the work that we have done and the work that a lot of the organizing, um, the grassroots organizations in Detroit have kept Detroit alive. Mm. I don't know if they led the way to gentrification, but I know that they kept the city alive in order for it to actually even occur. Okay. Um, and there's no, there's not a whole lot of credit for that. People forget about the very dark days. Um, and that a lot of the, a lot of the like, uh, narrative really goes to like Mike Duggan or Dan Gilbert, um, the mayor and, you know, major billionaire developer, um, that they're the ones that revitalized Detroit where they just, they put in fancy housing that no Detroiters can actually live in. They're bringing people into Detroit, but what has kept Detroit alive are those neighborhoods that are very poor are those like grassroots groups um and whether or not we can shift or change it's like it all is going to live in the same space Mm -hmm. and the question now is more like how will it interact how will we interact with each other um what are the community benefits that will happen with this new development what is the role of these people who did keep this soil alive what is their going to role going to be in this new development and so my job is to ensure that they have a seat at the table and they have the knowledge um, that they need in order to participate in developing their neighborhoods well thank you so much for taking the time to share your work with us today Thanks for wanting to listen. It's such a delight. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. Thanks also to Maya Wagner, who recommended that we talk to Nucera. We'd love to hear your thoughts about Working. Our email address is working at slate.com, and you can listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. But if you're all caught up, check out Slate's podcast, I Have to Ask, where Isaac Chotner talks with a wide array of exciting guests about some of the most pressing cultural and political issues of the present day. Working is produced and edited by Mickey Capper. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 